Jews are accused of being only caring about others too often in the international sphere, and others are accused of being too clannish, too parochial, not caring enough about the world, only caring about themselves. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pokoyi. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish world. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we'll hear from Professor James Leffler. He's a professor of Jewish history at the University of Virginia and the author of several books. The book that made me want to speak with him was Rooted Cosmopolitans, Jews and Human Rights in the 20th Century. In that book, Professor Leffler tells a story that is almost completely unknown today how the concepts of Zionism and international human rights are deeply connected in their origins. He shows, masterfully, that particularism and universalism don't need to be opposite, but complementary concepts. Professor Loeffler and I spoke in November, long before the COVID hecatomb turned our world upside down. However, I think you will find his historian perspective just as relevant today as it was when we spoke. Take a listen. Uh, hi, James. It's a great pleasure to have you here and have this conversation. I get to know about James Leffler's work quite serendipitously. It was actually when somebody recommended the title of a book that I found very intriguing, Rooted Cosmopolitans. And that got me into a fascinating world of Jews that were both rooted in the Jewish tradition, and yet at the same time, very cosmopolitan in their approach to the world. How did you come up with that name? <laughs> well, uh, uh, I'll tell you, I got to that name because... I am a historian. Uh, I specialize in modern Jewish history. I've done a lot of work on uh, history of Jews in Eastern Europe. And one of the great epithets, one of the great uh, charges against the Jews, the anti-Semitic images, was that of Stalin, uh, who called Jews uh, rootless cosmopolitans, right? And, and he famously attacked uh, Jews as a group that was um, had no roots anywhere, they didn't belong. Uh, and they were internationalist in the worst sense of the term, uh, globalist the way that word is sometimes used today in charged political terms. And um, I was interested in that image, which was an image which charged them uh, with be being um, too much in the world everywhere at once and also not belonging too clannish, too tribal. So Stalin said that about the Jews. Uh, and for me, I was interested in the topic of human rights, and that is also a topic where it, it produces these very sharp images today in the way we argue about human rights, about Israel, about things like that. Jews are accused – some Jews are accused of being only caring about others too often in the international sphere. This is an attack against many Jewish activists. And others are accused of being too clannish, too parochial, not caring enough about the world, only caring about themselves. So I thought that Stalin's uh, epithet you know, refashioned as rooted cosmopolitans, really nicely captures uh, the, the tension um, and how Jews are perceived, as well as how we perceive ourselves going through the world. It, it's quite interesting, because on the one hand, Jews throughout their history, I mean, we, we always danced between the universal and the particular. And that seems to be a particularly problematic point in today's world, like how to be particular and universal at the same time. Do, do you do you draw from Jewish sources, Jewish theology even, to get to the idea of rooted cosmopolitans? Mm -hmm. So yes, I mean, I think it's, uh, someone once joked to me, another professor, that all Jewish uh, academics write the same book over and over <laughs> again, which is all in different ways about uh, that negotiation, that balancing act between particular, universal, us and them. 
Um, and it's deeply inside Jewish religious tradition. When I began researching the book, and I wanted to tell the story of Jewish activism uh, in the human rights sphere, international human rights, I assumed there would be a lot of uh, tikkun olam. I thought there'd be religion in there, um, Jewish ethics. I was surprised that actually the place where the story begins for me is not with Torah or the rabbis. It begins uh, in Eastern Europe, and it begins with Zionism, you know, a decidedly modern um, Jewish movement, which itself has you know religious roots, historical roots, but was. A, as a new thing. And it's much more about how Jews figured out where they would fit physically, politically, philosophically into the world legally um, than it was about, simply put, a sense of continuing a theological project. Interesting. And so Zionism as a project, which may sound counterintuitive today for some, not for me, but for some, uh, was a project deeply rooted in notions of human rights and national rights. And these two things were not seen back then as contradictory, were they? Right. Uh, on the contrary, for this first generation of activists, so I write about, these are people who came of age during and after World War One. Which is, sorry, which is in and of itself an interesting discovery for me reading the book. We tend to think that human rights, it's born out of the ashes of World War II. In fact, in your book, you say, no, it's actually coming out of the fight for national rights in World War I. Exactly. Right. And that, and that links to what we were just talking about. Uh, I think our two images of, of, of human rights and Jews, one is well, of course, it's B'Tselem and Lokim. It's an ancient idea of, the, you know, people created an image of God. It's a religious idea. Or we think of it as a very modern idea. Of course, after the Holocaust, Jews fight for justice. Everyone realizes we need to think more about global justice. But in fact, it's not uh, ancient and it's not as modern as we think. It's, it's really that World War I moment. Jews are looking out at the world and particularly Jewish lawyers, of which there are many back then. Like now. Like now, right? <laughs> and uh, what they're seeing is a quest for, uh, I would call it um, both collective security or we could call it national rights, to protect themselves, uh, to be able to live freely in their countries they're living in. Um, and they're also thinking about how this connects to the broader world around them. They want to build that world. They want to build up international law after World War I. They want to build up the League of Nations. They think this will help them in the quest for a homeland, and this will help them for those who live in diaspora. And for me, it's not just about saying, oh, look, Zionism was compatible. It's also saying that Zionism was part of that process of reimagining what the world could look like for Jews. It's not that Zionism believed in national right despite universal rights, rather the opposite. The road to universal human rights needed to go through national rights. In other words, I don't have my human rights respected if I don't have the right to my own particular national identity. Right, right. That those things are interconnected. And, you know, the truth is this is not that strange an idea if you look at, uh, for instance, the, the, the writings of Louis Brandeis, the great American judge and, and leader of Zionism in the same exact period. What does he say? He says we have to protect people as individuals and as members of communities. And therefore, we should think about what we can do to do that. The guys I got interested in are doing something similar. Um, it's just that we've now arrived 100 years later in a very different moment where we imagine these things not as a creative tension, but as a fundamental uh, opposition. Right. And it's interesting because it looks as if the world after World War II that showed the worst excesses of nationalism, sort of got burned with the whole idea of nationalism and thought that the only way of upholding human rights was to lower national sovereignty and have these transnational human rights in order to curve the excesses of nationalism, correct? But in fact, when you think about it, human rights can only be exercised in a context of national sovereignty and the national state and the Leviathan that takes care of it, right? Right. I mean, I think uh, what people realized after World War II was that the nation state was going to be the best place to, uh, to, the best way to divide up the world and that empires were ending. And, World War One, you mean? Well, after World War One and World War Two, think about it. And the, Br the British Empire is ending, right? Uh, and um, so people are realizing that uh, 
the way to organize the world. The United Nations isn't going to be a, a global organization. It's a it's a club of states. So the way you give people rights, the way you protect them, is you give them their own sovereignty, you give them their own government, their own citizenship. Now the challenge for Jews uh, then was, well, where do we fit in? And then, of course, the answer that came from the Zionists was, well, we fit in if you give us a state, you give us a territorial homeland. Not every Jew will live there. Not only Jews will live there. But this will be a place where we can build that same thing that we, we need, just like other people's. But, and the vision for that Jewish state was a vision of a state that is precisely the vehicle for human beings to exercise their basic human rights like the Declaration of Independence, like that was the essence of, it wasn't, what I'm trying to get is, it was something designed to defend the Jewish character, but also to defend individual rights, which brings us to the question of, can it be Jewish and democratic at the same time? Right. So uh, it's it's exactly the question that was uh, also asked back then. And, you know, for instance, in the book, I look at some people involved in both the story of uh universal human rights at the UN and uh, the creation of the State of Israel. There's one man in particular who drafted a version of the uh, Israeli Declaration of Independence and also uh, a version of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the same time. So he saw both as interdependent and he imagined a a liberal democratic society in Israel, which would be uh, a nation state. Now, I think the key thing here is that if there was something that people missed or they didn't account for, it's that they assumed, many of the people I write about in this book, they assumed that, for instance, the world would be neatly divided. They assumed that there would be two states in 48. Uh, they assumed that there would be uh, non-Jews living in Jewish states, just like there were Jewish minorities living in other states. That was their vision. And of course, the war ended without that plan being realized. And then um, the tensions uh, emerged because, of course, this small state still had to survive and it faced uh, the challenges that it still faced today. So in a lot of ways, their dream was a dream of harmonizing everything. And what disappointed them was that the world wasn't fully um, organized the way it was supposed to be. Do you think if a guy like Lauterbach, who you write about in your book, that had that vision precisely of the Declaration of Independence and, and the rights that therein inscribed, what do you think these people would feel about Israel today? So it's a great question. Most of these people would put themselves today, I think, in the in the small category uh, or this relatively small category of liberal Zionists who felt deeply committed to nationhood, not just because they wanted a safe place, but they believed in the principles, as, as you mentioned, of kind of uh, the cultural value of Jewish identity, the Hebrew language. Um, but they were very much internationalists. They believed deeply in the UN. Um, so I think they would be, uh, like many today in that same category, kind of agonized uh, because they feel that um, the Jewish world has has split, and and many on uh, different sides of it don't believe in both of those things at once. Yeah, and and from your research and from your, what you know about this, do you think that synthesis between Jewish and democratic is still is still possible? Are you hopeful about that? <laughs> uh, well, first I'll tell you what I always say. I'm a historian, so I don't I don't get I don't have to predict. I don't get to predict. Um, but uh, I personally am hopeful. I think that the moment I write about in the book is a moment that passed. Uh, that's what happens in history. But what we see, and I think the value of this history is to recognize we are not the first generation to confront this dilemma. You know, we, we are not the first to feel like Jewish sovereignty will always be something in tension with democracy such that we can't have both at once. They knew this. And they had certain um, answers to the question of how we do it. But I think the, the devil is in the details. But the, the redemption, if you will, is also in the details because they saw that we didn't need to view it as a tension that would forever um, collapse the whole idea of a Jewish state. They saw something that had to be negotiated and renegotiated time and again. And it's a dynamic tension. It's not that, as you say, you don't solve it once and for all. You need to constantly work with it. Yes. Right. Constantly 
balancing the these two things. And, and and the other thing that should make us hopeful, I think, is that if they managed to make it work in 48, when the state was fledging and weak and the Jewish world was emerging from the enormous trauma of the Holocaust, maybe we can do it too. Our situation is infinitely better than theirs. Right. Right. I think that's true. I think they also realized something that's an important lesson for us today, which is that they understood that the the Jewish experience is only one part of the larger situation in the world, right? So sometimes people talk about uh, anti-Semitism as the canary in the coal mine that, you know, as it, as it spikes in society, it shows the society under pressure, crisis, and it's dangerous to the Jewish people, but it's part of a larger phenomenon. So these people also confronted that, that tension uh, before World War II. And they, they struggled with how do we protect ourselves while also recognizing the larger threats, for instance, to democracy. And I think if there's anything that they would find surprising in, in Israel today, it's uh, not that there are larger pressures and crises. It's more the loss of faith that we sometimes see there and here too in democracy as a whole. And you see it from different parts of the political spectrum, but this kind of sense that the democratic process uh, is, is somehow rigged or isn't going to play out right, I think they would be shocked to see that. Because these are people, you have to remember, who came out of autocracies. They came out of societies that, that, that were unfree, that were ruled by czars, you know, and they lived through totalitarianism. And so the idea that democracies themselves, with all the contradictions and the tensions, that they themselves would begin to doubt their own good would be shocking to them. Right, and, and democracy is, after all, the only political system, I mean, liberal democracy, the only political system that ever guaranteed the safety and the well-being of the Jews. There was no autocracy that didn't persecute the Jew, and there was no liberal democracy that ever persecuted the Jews. Yeah, so they were, yeah, they, they understood. I think that's something else I'd, I'd point out, and here again, I'm going to sound like the, the cranky history professor, but these activists had a deep, deep knowledge of Jewish political history. And one of the things I would say that is surprising in, in speaking to different communities about this book and about Jewish history today in the past year or so is that, again, on the right and on the left, there's a real lack of depth of knowledge about even the history of Zionism from some people who are most deeply committed to it or very strong critics inside the Jewish sphere. There's not so much knowledge of what it really was like as a movement. There's an incredible focus only on the last, you know, what the latest uh, situation to develop in Israel or this headline or, you know, one iconic figure or another. These people that I was interested in were part of a, a, a generation or two that was deeply, deeply aware of what Jewish history could teach us about, um, as you said, the Jewish political strategies for survival. Yeah, and, and it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, about that ignorance about the basic elements of Zionist ideology, I get, like many of us, I mean, in many forums in which people pontificate about what is, you know, who is a Zionist and who isn't, and they really have no idea. They haven't read any of the seminal books of Zionism. They don't know who Pinsker is or who uh, Borokhov or anybody. So there is, there is, I think, in the community uh, a lot of um, shallowness in how we engage with the question of Zionism. It's also, I would just, you know, I'd say to be fair, one of the things, this book covers really the whole century. And to be fair, one of the reasons for that is that Zionism has been a victim of its own success, right? In the sense that a century ago, people imagined it could play the role to help mobilize and protect Jews, to give them a place inside Poland and inside these other societies, and it could give them a homeland. So after World War II, we have this reality where the Jewish world really begins to be concentrated just in America and just in Israel. So Zionism changes from something connected to uh, larger diaspora life, about the Hebrew language, about cultural rights, and it becomes something much more associated with identifying with the state, supporting the state of Israel, right, advocating for it. And so because our, our political life is so concentrated just in America and, and Israel for, for many Jews, not all. The meaning of what Zionism could be 
has shrunk, and we don't actually see the other forms of it. We don't talk so much about, we worry so much about the relationship between Israel and the diaspora. But as you said, few of us go back to read Echad uh, Ha'am or Pinsker. Much less do we think about the idea of what we want to ask for as a group inside this society or in Europe today or elsewhere. Right. And the, and the views that we have of the Zionist dream today are not thick enough, are not dense enough. Like when we talk a lot about the startup nation, and that's great, but is that a vision of a state, a technological hub? Is that what Zionism is today? Or is it a thicker vision of society, of justice, of you know, civic and, and religious engagement? Um, and we, we haven't really come up with, a, with an update of the Zionist idea, I think. I think that's true. And I, I, one of the things that strikes me coming to these questions uh, as a scholar who started f- focusing on Eastern Europe is that, for instance, there, I think the Hebrew language has a lot more uh, resonance for many Jewish communities who are not moving to Israel necessarily, but view this language as their language and their way to be Jewish, regardless of their religious identification. And I'm always struck by American Jews who who could care so much about Israel and want to connect with it, but don't, and don't speak Hebrew. Don't speak Hebrew. They don't see that even as a project of, of their own, you know, how they might grow their own relationship to it. I think it's a lost opportunity. And it's partly because Israel's so easy for us to access, but it's a lost it's a lost dimension of that relationship. Yeah. And um, and it's interesting also in terms of Zionism. I was having a conversation with somebody who said, well, Zionism doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's a person that lives in Israel and is highly committed to the state. But he basically says Zionism was a program. As a program, it fulfilled its goal. It created a state. Though so that's it. It's, it it's, it's over. And I come from the perspective that Zionism is not a program. It's an ideology. Right. So where where do you f- fall on that? So uh, I agree with you. Of course, it's it's not a program. It, it, it was an ideology. I would go further than you and say, look, it was always many ideas. There were left wing Zionists. There were right wing Zionists. There were centrists. There were socialists. You know, one of the things that happened was a big marketplace of ideas where Jews who all call themselves Zionists nevertheless had different visions of what that meant, how much to focus on social justice, how much to focus simply on migration. Um, And it was many things rolled into one. These were, again, tensions, but those tensions helped them, I think, overall to sharpen their ideas, to find ways to connect to different parts of the Jewish population. Today, there's much less ideation. There's much less thinking about that. There's a lot more kind of uh, yes, no, binary, it is this, it isn't, we have to do this. And I think it is. Uh, it needs to be redefined in a, in a way appropriate to our moment. Right. And, and, the, and the polarization of the Jewish world and of the secular world doesn't help because we don't, you know, you can't really articulate different ideas in a free marketplace of idea because that market square doesn't exist anymore. Like we don't really talk to one another about these things. I don't know if anywhere we're discussing the meaning of Zionism in the way you're, you're describing it. I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's harder to see that. We're much more um, suspicious of our differences, you know, rather than simply aware of them. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we became so afraid of this dissent in the Jewish community or to sort of articulate different ways of being a Zionist? Is it because the existential fear? That doesn't make too much sense for me because we're stronger than ever before. So how come back in the 40s, we felt strong enough to have all this conversation and these debates without fearing our own dissolution? And now that we're stronger, we're afraid. That's a, that's a wonderful question. I think, uh, I would put it to you this way. Uh, inevitably, some things that were assumed in 1948 or 1967 or even maybe 1994 you know, have not come to pass. The, the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's, it's, it has a huge effect right, on the American Jewish psyche when we discuss it or when we don't discuss it. The, the ethical and political challenges that come with the occupation, these are real problems and they are hard to talk about because they go to the core of how we relate to this place those who see it as as just um, a, a really important religious drama playing out, those who see it just as a political quagmire, all those fractious debates. So I think that makes it harder. 
A second thing I would say, though, is about American American Jewish identity. And I don't think it's all about Israel and the Palestinians. I think it also has to do with we have become much more conflicted about how we talk about our own place in a society. Are Jews a minority group? Where do we fit in to the to the to the tapestry of minority life in America? That's harder to do. And Zionism, first and foremost, is about a, a, a robust collective identity, right? A, a saying we're, we're a people. And I think we've become um, there's a lot more ambivalence among American Jews, and I don't just mean young people. People constantly say, "Oh, it's college students today." I think. It's not right, as 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 you probably encounter um, the fun, the people in the world of, of philanthropy see, there's such a, a complicated American Jewish identity where people can have strong attachments to Israel, but also um, reservations about marking themselves out as different in the American context, and I think that's a big part of it. I think understanding what, where we fit, and our strategies for fitting, in some sense, depended a lot on having a, a place called Israel where we could say. Well, that's where the, the the really Jewish Jews are, and then in America we can have a kind of a happier, lighter version of Jewish life, and that's not satisfying to many people. But we haven't figured out how to define our relationship to American society as well as to Israel. And because attachment to Israel is perceived to be so tenuous and so endangered, so we we are very afraid of doing anything that would jeopardize that that attachment. But I don't think it has. First of all, I don't think it is that tenuous. I think that American Jews can take it. They can have this robust conversation about their relation with Israel. And I think that the way to make it less tenuous is precisely by developing the things that you're talking about, like a stronger sense of identity, a stronger base to be able to have those conversations. I, I think so. I'm an optimist like you. So, uh, and, and I'll tell you something, just uh, kind of, you know, stories from the road. As I said, I spent uh, about a year uh, speaking about this book on college campuses, JCCs, elsewhere. Many people assumed there would be heckling, there'd be problems, there'd be, you know, I faced very, very little of that, if any. I saw an appetite, a genuine appetite among people to talk about this. And kind of people are looking for, you know, ideas to think about these hard issues. And there are always going to be people who want to shout and scream and protest. But the vast majority of people really want ways to connect with hard questions and material to think about them with. Do you... Do you uh... Do you see that people were surprised when you mentioned the, the the sort of very close link between Zionism and human rights and civic rights? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I and um, I would also that that's that in and of itself because for me it goes without saying. Yes, but yeah, if people but... get surprised about it, is it means that it's not obvious for no, it's not obvious because we, because. Um, I think in many parts of, of the political spectrum today, there's a sense that human rights have become a threat to Jews, you know, and they're, they're a polarized topic inside Israeli life. And in other parts of the political spectrum, there's a strong sense that Zionism, whatever it once was, is something today that people don't identify with. Nationalism is the enemy in terms of liberal democracy, so nationalism must always be bad, and we just had a Jewish version of it, which, you know, was a temporary blip. So the conjunction of the two in the past is very hard for people to wrap their heads around. Now, as an historian, you probably know about the previous times in which Jews experimented with national sovereignty. And I am an avid reader of the story of the Hasmonean dynasty. And this is a time where Israel experienced national sovereignty for around 70, 80 years, and then all went to hell. (laughs) Are there any lessons that as a people we can extract from what happened 2000 years ago? Well, that's a, it's a dream question for a historian to get. <laughs> um, no, I, I think there are. Um, first of all, one of the challenges, is, 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 as we know in Hasmonean society, was um, the challenge of managing diversity internally. 
right? It, it never had to just survive. It also had to fit but the fact that there were non-Jews living in this country. Uh, they're part of this country. Some of them were there by choice. Some of them, you know, moved there. There's a whole complicated story there. And that became, as we know, a big challenge. But there was also division, like enormous division within the Jewish people. Oh, within the, the Jewish people. Too. Yeah, and the Pharisees and the Essenes. Yeah, the- yeah, absolutely. I mean, the internal divisions uh, were a big source of instability, and there was not a lot of reckoning with them. And I would say for both of those, but also for the non-Jewish population, the kind of um, the failure to engage with that question and figure out what is our vision uh, of a Jewish polity um, you know, that's a, not, just, not just a philosophical question. It's a, it's a real question that was on the table then. And I think it's on the table now to see um, that, how that played out. I think it's also one of the challenges also is to understand that the same power that came to give the Hasmoneans support, the Romans, you know, 80 years later was the power that began to dismantle their sovereignty, right? And so... Uh, I don't think that means we need to start, uh, you know, getting into arguments about America and Israel. But I think it's important to understand that uh, just a relationship to a to a, a dominant power is not the full answer to the question of how uh, a society, a country, a nation survives, right? And just like now, there was a very hard realist strain in in Hasmonean political thought, right? That if you if you maintain the balances and the alliances and the army, you you solve these problems. But we know in that society that not addressing issues about religious pluralism, issues about moral leadership, all those problems were there then. And those turned out to be the great fissures that, as the rabbis teach us, led to the society to split apart and be destroyed. So I, I, th- I think that is a, a cautionary lesson. Yeah. And also, you know, when you read the story of, you know, Alexander Yanai, that he becomes high priest and king. And sort of he he sort of eliminates the separation of powers, as it were, like that always existed in Jewish life. And it's it's something really interesting when you read today about the overreach of certain governments trying to eliminate the separation of power with the override out of the Knesset or whatever. It it brings some elements of that tension too. Absolutely, I think you know you asked me earlier in our conversation what would the people I read about in the book think of Israel today? I think they would be surprised by that as well. They'd be surprised by the the blurring of religion and state in certain ways. They ranged in their own personal religious identities, but they would have been surprised by that and troubled by that because uh, many of them were lawyers too, and they understood that the independence of uh, the judicial branch of government was a very, very powerful tool of democracy that was a crowning achievement of Israeli society and liberal societies as a whole. So they would be very, they would be watching that debate, which is a very live debate in Israel and here uh, very closely. So shifting gears from the Jewish to the general for a moment, you know, the world today seems to be torn between two paradigms that sits in the two extremes. You have a paradigm of nationhood, of peoplehood, that is tribal, ethnocentric, and that generally goes into xenophobia, right? Sort of, we define ourselves in opposition to anybody else. And, you know, the the neo-nationalism that we have today you know, from Hungary to Brazil, you know, with many other stops in between, is a tribalist sort of ethnocentric paradigm. On the other hand, you know, you have mostly in the far left, a sort of multiculturalist, universalist paradigm that tells you, you are not really allowed to have any particular or national identity. Those are illegitimate by definition. You're only allegiance has to be to humanity as a whole. And the world seems to be caught between these two things. Is there a chance of coming up with a third way that is sort of a combination of the best of both? You know, like the ability to have a strong national identity with the ability of being open to the world. So I think the answer to that question is we had it. It was it was the nation state. And, and we still have it. Um, you know, if you think about the Olympics model, the Olympics is 
everyone comes together and you are able to reach beyond borders, but you come as part of where you live. Now, that model is uh, under pressure. And I think you're, you're right in saying it leads to these polarized responses to say uh, that we have to give up collectivity, you know, the nation is the enemy, or to say the opposite, that the global is the enemy, right? Um, and I think it's possible. Where it will come, I suspect, is in rethinking what the state looks like, what citizenship looks like, right? Because these are the ways in which we all as individuals plug into a political, a legal framework. And I I don't know where that will go. But I but think... The state, it, the state is under pressure because... So let's say if you live in Europe... The state was in in many ways emptied out of its sovereignty. Like much of much of what the state used to do is now decided at a European level. If you live even in the United States, the power of the state is weakened because like economic cycles work on their own accord. The state seems mostly powerless to do anything about them. Uh, globalization seems to swipe out the place of the nation state. So there is a reaction of, oh, wait a minute, let's protect that. But on the other, but that protection is, in many cases, evolves into a reaction of hatred towards the other and towards the global. Right. No, I think, I think that's true. These forces have called into question what the state can do. And I think you see that in this, co- in this country where there is both a, a certain the same person could tell you that they don't trust the government, but they want the government to provide. You know, uh, the same person could tell you that, um, you know, all governments are bad, but then they want their government to do something to stop an atrocity somewhere. And I, I think you're right. We have to figure that out. It, it's clear. You know, I might turn this back to the to the realm of human rights, where we sort of started our conversation. One of the interesting things I've observed is that in the world of international human rights, they are grappling with this too. And one may think they spend all their time talking about the Middle East, but really the question of economics and the question of what we expect governments to provide their citizens, what benefits, what support, what jobs, what kind of economy, that's that's a live question. And whether uh, law can do that, whether we would want law to do that, or whether that's um, not the way to go. So I think those are those are really big questions. And they really get down to you know, we thought the nation state was essentially the de facto model for what everything should look like. Um, but our assumptions about that nation and state connection holding are, are not there. And I'm not sure it's about only, you know, the EU or the UN or globalization taking away the power of states. But I think it's it's calling into question whether they can do what they need to do when our jobs may belong to a company that lives somewhere else in the world or when or when the migration of people seems to be coming and it doesn't fit the way we think about how we run citizenship all those in a meta sense are are reflections of that uh, of that challenge uh, and we see them right we see all of that can you belong to one country or more than one country all of these problems could it be that the jews with our historical experience of jumping all the time between the universal and the particular, could we be the ones who figured it out and just legate that to the world? (laughs) I'd love to think so. Uh, I think that um, the Jewish experience is a terrific resource for engaging with that. I think that if I could take one lesson out of the book, it's that the people who have tried to do that before and and we should say also gave us so many of these basic building blocks of, of global justice and other things. They did it not by kind of loosely rooting themselves in their tradition and then going outwards, but by thinking very hard and honestly about what um, needs to happen. So one of the challenges I would say, I think for philanthropists today is how do you cultivate a kind of Jewish path into these questions uh, while avoiding hot button topics. And I, I frankly think that the lesson from the past is you can't avoid the hot button topics. The goal has to be to find ways to thoughtfully engage them so they don't overwhelm the, the project, right? And I think that's true certainly with Israel where we all know the hot button topics. We can't fully sidestep them, but that doesn't mean they have to derail a Jewish path towards these questions and towards the future. So if I'm a funder and I'm listening to you, I would say that funding stuff that deals with learning in depth 
the Jewish history and the Jewish experience in all their diverse manifestations should be a priority of the philanthropic community. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yes, I think so. I think it's also, I don't think it's as difficult as we think. You know, there are certain practices that we have as a community, whether we identify as religious or secular, or what degree, um, about text, uh, about about questioning, about dialogue that are very powerful models. And I see that even here where I teach university where non-Jewish students who encounter something like Hevruta, you know, they're fascinated by this as a way to learn and to, and to co-teach. So I think we are better at it. It's easier than we think to do this in-depth learning. Right, right. And, but we, we, and we seem to be afraid of it. We seem to all the time invest more in frameworks for Jewish engagement rather than content, rather than deep, thick content of, of that identity. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. That's a challenge, particularly for those funders and activists and practitioners interested in the social justice space, right? Where where there's um, there's so much appetite out there to 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 meet, but it's hard uh, sometimes to do that in a way in which you're giving people uh, it really informed knowledge, this real stronger background with it. Right, because I think that, I mean, the more I listen to you, the more. I understand that to engage into those conversations, like knowledge is crucial. It's, it's really important, like very old style learning, you know, and knowing what we're talking about when we talk about Zionist ideals, for example, it's, it's, it's paramount. Yes. Yeah. But talking about Zionist and talking about learning and university, let me ask you something different. How does it feel in this day and age of uh, trigger alerts and uh, polarization to be a Jewishly engaged Zionist teacher at a university? Uh, it feels pretty good. I mean, the university, um, I think much of the perception that is outside in the Jewish community towards the university uh, as a whole, as a place of uh, unique challenges about anti-Semitism and Israeli-Palestinian controversies, um, is just not there to the degree, to the, at the scale that is often uh, perceived to be. Certainly that's been my experience, that there is controversy, there is debate, there are issues that surface, but as a whole, there is a great curiosity among students to learn about Judaism. Um, some of it's connected to the Middle East, some of it's not. They just want to learn about Judaism. It's a fascinating culture and religion, and there is, a, there is an appetite there. I think also that it's important to say that people understand that they can have a conversation in a university, particularly in a classroom. This is different than a speaker, some rabble-rouser speaker who shows up to speak. But in a classroom, in a structured environment, you can ask hard questions, you can think about these issues in ways that you can't at home, that's different outside. But, 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 let, me, but let me pressure you on that a little bit. I mean, I think, Please. isn't all this culture of you know, again, trigger alerts and, and sensitivities and intersectionality and all that, isn't that a dampen on the deep discussion of issues when you have to be careful of not offending sensitivities at every step? Doesn't that have a chilling effect on academic debate? So I hear what you're saying, and I know this is a concern that's been registered by some other people talking about the university of late. Um, I'll be very honest with you. I don't experience that. I think it is overstated. I think it comes in certain parts of university life. I think it comes um, often when we leave the classroom and we get to the campus speaker or the campus organization where there are hard questions happening out there, especially for Jewish students. Uh, in the classroom, I find only, if anything, because there is such a mistrust now of news and social media and you know many young people are struggling with the fact that they feel like everything is spin out there. When they come into the classroom, there are issues that come up with with uh, sensitivity and stuff like that, but by and large what they really want is they want what we always want, which is substance. So I, I think frankly it's um, it, I can't speak for every university, but I think some of it is exaggerated as fears. Not the questions about anti-Semitism, but the questions about uh, how it is impossible to have a conversation without people jumping in and saying they're feeling you know, upset or threatened. I don't see that. I think it's also um, the case. I mean, I taught a course two years ago on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to 120 students. And it happened immediately after also uh, 
the the Gaza War, the Gaza War, and the alt right uh, march on Char- oh, yeah, Char- yeah, yeah. Charlottesville, where there was uh, uh, terrible things happened, and we're still recovering. Um, and I said to the students, this is a space, not a safe space, but this is a space where we don't have to go outside and, and, and pick our sides and decide how to protest or respond to this or that. Here's a space to think and to discuss. And that's all we have to do here, to learn, to think, to discuss. And we did the whole semester without incident because the students really were wanted to know, especially those who say, I know what I'm being told I'm supposed to think from my family, from my community. Now I want to think for myself. So I think that ultimately wins out over the concerns that people bring into the university about threats and triggers and stuff like that. I, I'm, I'm an optimist there, too. I have an ongoing battle that I'm losing <laughs> all along the line about the need for funders to see the importance of the humanities, of the Jewish humanities, like, you know, philosophy, history, languages. Uh, can you help me <laughs> make my case to the funders about the importance of investing in the humanities? Okay. So here's my pitch to you, okay? Um, One generation, two generations ago, Jewish studies as a field of the humanities really needed the university. We needed it because we had scholars who were refugees from World War II who needed jobs. We needed it because we needed a way to explain to America who we were. So we had to be able to teach America what Judaism was as religion or history. And we needed it as a way to cultivate a kind of scholarship that would help our rabbis and our leaders understand themselves. We needed the university. Now I think, frankly, it's the opposite. The university needs Jewish studies. Why? Because the questions it's confronting about difference, about pluralism, about anti-Semitism and the legacies of hatred, about the Holocaust, Holocaust memory, all of this is what we do with our academic humanities studies, right? We're teaching people how to think critically about these hard issues, and the Jewish experience is a way to do it. There is a reason that Holocaust history courses uh, are hugely popular here at my university and many other places. I don't think it's because people want to study war and gore. I think it's because they see there are hard ethical questions inside the Holocaust that whoever you are are, resonate. And I think this is true also when we think about other aspects of of studying the humanities, about studying the the Torah, studying the Bible, you know, studying... Yeah, there's no new Jewish theology nowadays. Yeah. And we may need it. Well, we may need it, yes. But if you're a funder wanting to impact that space, right, I would say that Jewish studies is a way to speak well beyond the Jewish world to people who are looking for questions about their own identity. Every term, I find students who come in and they want to take a course about Jewish history. Why? Because they're they're themselves are immigrants or their parents are immigrants, and they they want to learn from the Jewish Jews were immigrants too. They want to understand that how you Americanize. And the same thing goes for the Holocaust, as I mentioned. Same thing goes for the religious side of it. I get tons of uh, Catholic students. They don't want to take a course about Catholicism because that's too close to home, but they want to think about religion. And so they take a course about Judaism. So we have something to offer, which is uh, has the added benefit of exposing people actually to what Jews are really about. Going back to the question of liberal Zionism, I mean, something keeps bouncing in my head from what you said. You said liberal Zionists are a minority. Now, I think, and maybe I'm biased, maybe that's my interaction, but I think that liberal Zionists are actually the silent majority out there. I think the people, I mean, the Jew in the street that is moderately engaged, which is the majority, you know, intuitively sees a way of engaging with both sides of the spectrum, the Jewish and the democratic, the liberal and the Zionist, and they don't see the contradiction that we that we sometimes see in the in the media or, or in the extreme. Do you think I'm right, or do you think I'm again too optimistic? Uh, I think you're right to a point. I would put it this way: I think the the I think there is a silent majority who are both self-identified as liberal in terms of liberal values, democracy, 
even identifying with the political left and who are Zionist, I think that is a vast majority. I don't know that most of those people would actually put the two words together and call themselves that. And I think the reason is to put them together means to to engage much more directly with the questions about the conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It, you know, it's to have to have a position on where the U.S. should be funding or what they shouldn't be funding. It's to have a position about Israeli politics and about the debates over the Palestinian Authority, Hamas. It's to have a much more uh, defined position about how these things relate to one another. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to do. It's it's hard as a whole. And there's a the number of people who would come out and say, I can define myself this way. The Israeli policy should be X, and this is what it means because of my liberal values. That is a is a subset. But the people who hold both things and feel both are totally both holdable at the same time, I think that is a lot of people. They just haven't quite figured out how to put them together. Right. And we as a community haven't figured out how to empower them to come out of their silence and say, hey, we believe that you can do both, and here's how we do it. You know, without necessarily, you know, having an opinion on every particular policy issue, but as a principle, we think that both are not contradictory. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's easier for us to to kind of focus on X issue and Y issue and, and, and to say these things, um, you know, putting together is messy and complicated. Let's focus on this commitment of yours. But putting together is, is an important endeavor for the community. James, thank you for this fascinating conversation about a fascinating book and about a fascinating topic. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Professor James Leffler, for speaking with us. You can check out his books and other writings at jamesleffler.com. That is James, L-O-E, sfler.com. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about the podcast, about guest ideas, historical insights, whatever you want to send us. Write us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the work of the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. And you can find me and follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I'll leave you with this thought from the Talmud in Gitin 43a. A person can't understand words of Torah unless he stumbles over them. So keep stumbling on wisdom, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.